This is a recording made in the chapter of the opened book under the covering title of the Pre-Roma. The present study will be occupied with the closing chapters of the book of the Revelation. It is our custom at this meeting to read a portion of scripture together and those of you who are using this recording, if you care to join us, will you switch off for a moment or two while we read together Luke chapter 24. This evening, <coughs> this evening, we are bringing our studies under the heading of the Pleroma to the last section of scripture, mainly the closing chapters of the book of the Revelation, because it's utterly impossible to think about the word fullness and pre-Roma without the focus that we get in the book of the Revelation at the time of the end, how all things ultimately are heading up into Christ. And so we had read, we have read among ourselves, this passage in Luke 24. On two occasions in that chapter, you remember, he declares that the Moses, Moses of the prophets, spake concerning himself. We have on the shelves in this chapel more than one copy of a Hebrew Bible. And if you were to take one down and look on the back of it, whether you could read the Hebrew letters or not, you would see that it had a threefold title on the back. And that threefold title would be the Torah, the Nabayan, and the Kethubit. You say, thank you. Now the Torah is the word law. Nebaim is the plural of the prophets. And the Kethubim is the rest of the writing. Now inasmuch as the book of the Psalms is the first section of the book of the writings, and it's a most important section, that the Ketubim, or the writings, are very often called the Psalms. But it includes much more than the Psalms. It includes Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, all those sort of wisdom and poetic books, Job and so on. So our Saviour, in resurrection, he endorsed the complete canon of Old Testament Scripture. He said, these are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you. And that's an important verse to remember. Because there are some, and alas I heard them say so, that when our Saviour in the fifth chapter of John's Gospel said, um, Moses spoke of him, I'll give you the exact words, for had ye believed Moses, ye would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if ye believe not his writings, thou should ye believe my words. That's a challenge. He said, what I said to you earlier, I say now in resurrection. Because as I say just now, I heard a higher critical principle of a college actually say in a meeting that those words in John 5 were the expression of someone who hadn't got any more knowledge of the subject than a Galilean peasant. That's our saviour. And so I challenged him in the meeting. And I said, would you say the same thing when Christ had died and risen again to ascend up to the Father, the victor? He looked at me for a few minutes as though he would like to kill me, you know. And then he actually said in that meeting, while Christ was upon earth, even in resurrection, he didn't know. He didn't know. And that man was training preachers. Do you wonder where sometimes we get? 
What chances a man if he's drilled and taught in things like that to go out and preach the word of God? But here we have the risen Christ definitely endorsing Moses, the prophets and the Psalms and he says they spoke of me. Well that's what we shall discover of course and have discovered right through our subject. He is the beginning. He's the ending. The things that come to pass in the yet future were already in him in plan and purpose. He is the Alpha. He's the Omega. He's the Yay and the Amen. And in him all the fullness dwells. The fullness of doctrine, the fullness of prophecy, the fullness of purpose. And so we come this evening to the converging of all prophecy in him. Mostly, we shall be concerned about the millennial kingdom and what it means and is involved in the term, the new heaven and the new earth which follows and its association with the new Jerusalem. We shall have to go a little bit beyond the book of the Revelation before we get to the absolute end, but we won't anticipate that. That will be just the last subject before this series closes. Now this evening, we will concentrate our attention upon the converging testimony of prophecy. Now I've only got a selection on the top of this chart. You see the converging lines? Uh, you may be able to make another one. Or you can add the lines. But we'll just take a few as a sample of the way in which when scripture is speaking, if you follow it out, you'll eventually, uh, eventually come to the place where Christ is going to step in and bring it to a conclusion. Will you first of all turn with me to Ezekiel, chapter 21. Now Ezekiel is a very difficult prophecy to unravel, but I don't think we shall find very much difficulty in realising the insistence that is made in this particular chapter. Chapter 21, verse 25 to verse 27. Ezekiel 21, 25 And thou profane, wicked prince of Israel, whose day is come, when iniquity shall have an end, thus saith the Lord God, remove the diadem and take off the crown. This shall not be the same. Exalt him that is low, Abase him that is high, I will overturn, overturn, overturn it, and it shall be no more, until he come, whose right it is, and I will give it to him. I'll read you another rendering. If I quote from Moffat, it's not because I endorse his higher critical tendencies, but because he has a very apt way, sometimes, of saying a thing in English, that uh, arrest your attention. Here's the passage again, all over again. And you, you knave, all prince of Israel, to be slain. Now that's another rendering, and it's a legitimate one. Our version says, And thou profane wicked prince of Israel, whose day is come. This one says, To be slain. And when you look behind the scenes, you find that that is so. Who for whom the hour of sin's punishment 
brings doom. Off with his diadem, away with his crown, says the Lord the Eternal. Turn things upside down, up with the low, down with the high. I lay all in ruins, ruins, ruins. Everything shall be overturned till the rightful one arise, arise and I will give him everything. Well, that's another way of saying the same thing. I'd like you to notice in all these passages, I've got a reason for selecting them, that it doesn't seem to leave any loophole or any opportunity along the line somewhere for God to intervene and bring blessing on the earth for any period. If those words mean what they appear to mean, God says, I will overturn, 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 and we'll have chaos until he comes, who's right it is, and I'll give it to him. Now the Apostle Paul, who was soaked in Scripture even before he was a Christian, he says these words in 1 Corinthians 11. When he's describing the last Passover that our Saviour attended before his death, which turned into the first Lord's Supper, it says, when you now take this Passover feast after this day, he said, when you now do it, you don't remember a Passover out of Egypt and a lamb that was slain then, you remember a greater Passover and a greater lamb that's now been slain. And he says, you do this, kill he come. There are the words here. Till he come. Who's right it is. He didn't say those words, but they're there. So here we have then one prophecy which looks right down the line of things and says, Israel, the chosen people, destined at long last to be a kingdom of priests, a vehicle of blessing to all the earth. Their kings and priests and prophets and people that turned out so disreputable that instead of bringing a blessing they were more of a curse to people. He says, it's no good. I made Adam, but he failed. We started all over again with Noah, but he failed. I called Abraham, but he's failed. I've got David and I've got Solomon. Oh no. Every one of them got outstanding characteristics any amount of them, things that we might be glad to emulate, and yet a streak of failure. And so he says, after this, I will overturn, overturn, overturn till he comes, and I'll give it to him. Well, that's the essence of prophecy. That God has been showing by all these means that only one person can bear the burden. Only one. No shoulder is broad enough, no back is strong enough, no heart is courageous enough, no one is holy enough or righteous enough to bring this purpose to its final issue but the Son of God himself. Well, we've got other things to look at. I'll leave that to speak for itself. <clears throat> the next line is dealing with the prophet Hosea. Now, the prophet Hosea is not very far from Ezekiel, you just turn on, and after Daniel, you come to the first of the minor prophets, Hosea. Now, in the first chapter, you're told that this man not only had to speak, 
But he had his whole domestic life involved in the fact that he was a prophet. He had to marry a certain woman, whether he liked her or not. And when his children were born, they were given names, not the uh, family names or the name of aunt so-and-so or uncle so-and-so. They were given typical names. So we'll notice them, shall we? Verse 4. Call his name Jezreel. For yet a little while, and I will avenge the blood of Jezreel upon the house of Jehu, and will cause to cease the kingdom of the house of Israel. The word Jezreel is what is called a homonym. That is to say, the same word and the same lettering may represent two related things. The first meaning of the word Jezreel is to scatter. But the second meaning is to sow seed. And of course that's true with us. Or used to be. I do remember seeing a man going across the field, sowing like this. But of course that's becoming a bit antique now. But we have the hymn at the Harvest Festival still. We plough the fields and scatter. Now this double word, you'll find, is um, picked up at the end of chapter 2. Verse 23. And I will sow her unto me in the earth. You see, that's playing on the word Jezreel. Now the next child, in verse 6, is called Lo-Ruhaba. And that means not having received mercy. So at the end of chapter 2, it says, I will sow her unto me in the earth, and I will have mercy upon her that had not obtained mercy. And the third child is brought before us in verse 9, called his name no army, for ye are not my people, and I will not be your God. And at the end of verse 2, I will sow her unto me in the earth, that's one child, I will have mercy upon her that had not obtained mercy, that's the second, and I will say to them which were not my people, Thou art my people. And they shall say, Thou art my God. See, see, those names must be kept in mind. Well, now, chapter 3 goes on to explain its bearing upon prophetic teaching. It looks as though this woman that he had married was not a very nice sort of person, morally, and he had to share in the agony of mind and heart of God who chose that people of Israel and entered into marriage covenant with them and then they played fast and loose with it so that he had to set these people aside and this man had to go through the same experience. But instead of putting the woman completely away, you see, divorce is contrary to the will of God it was permitted because of the hardness of people's hearts, but not in the mind of God. And a person may accuse God and say, well, you divorced Israel, but friends, you've got to watch. He put Israel aside, but he's going to take them back again. That's not divorce, is it? So watch our step when we use these terms. Now it says, you buy her back again because she's been sold apparently into the slavery of another person. Verse 3, And I said unto her, Thou shalt abide for me many days. And apparently a woman who was going to be treated like that was sequestered for a certain number of days just to mark time a bit while things were straightening themselves out. Thou shalt abide for me many days. Thou shalt not play the harlot and thou shalt not be for another man. Then God says, So will I also be for thee. And I'll tell you one of the things that's often omitted 
when we are speaking about the no army condition of Israel. We say, no army means they are not God's people, and there we stop. But it's not that. Let's come back to chapter 1 again and see what we missed out. <coughs> Verse 9, then said God, call his name no army, for ye are not my people, and I will not be your God. Now if, if the people of Israel at this present time, and this last 1900 years, have not been God's people, no army. No city, no Jerusalem, no temple, no land, scattered all over the earth. Not only have, have they not been God's people, but he has ceased to be the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And a Christian today, who goes before God and pleads the Old Testament titles, is forgetting that the Syrophoenician woman came into the presence of our Saviour, and she said, Thou son of David. He answered not a word. What's the son of David to do with you, a Gentile? Not till she said, Lord, did he, get, did he give her an answer at all. And you and I, while we can see in the Old Testament that Abraham, Isaac and Jacob were the fathers, but if the people are gone and taken all their covenants and promises with them, unless God is going to treat us on different ground, we are in a fix. But he says, I will not be your God. What's the good of us going and saying, Oh, thou God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, hear me, a poor Gentile. No. The epistle to the Ephesians says to me, Don't you worry about the fact that you may not say, Oh, thou God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You remember that Ephesians says that our Saviour comes and takes the place. The God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. Right. As long as he's there, I may miss something that Abraham, Isaac and Jacob could give me, but I'm going to get far more through him, so all is well. Well now, back again to chapter 3 of Hosea. Thou shalt abide for me many days, and thou shalt not play the harlot, thou shalt not be for another man, so will I also be for thee, a waiting time. For the children of Israel shall abide many days without a king, they have, haven't they? 1900 years, and without a prince. And you say, what's the difference? Well, it looks as though they have no king of their own and no earthly prince has ever ruled Israel. They've only ruled parts of them. So that the poor Jews had the awful experience of being conscripted into the armies that are fighting one another under one prince or another. And they're without a sacrifice. If you attend the synagogue service, if you were to be connected with the people of Israel in their great fast, the Day of Atonement, they bemoan the fact that they cannot offer a sacrifice to God. They ask God to take in substitution of the sacrifice they ought to offer, the blood they've lost in fasting. Or they take a cock bird, hold its legs together, and wave it over their head and say, can that be accepted instead? Look at the people, not God's people. They haven't got the sacrifice, or they haven't got the priest, for that's the, for the word ephod. They have no image, for they never once again lapsed into idolatry since the days of Christ. And they have no teraphim, and that's a little bit of a problem. But the possibility is, it goes back to the name Tilar, and has to do with genealogies. As you know how they very much venerated, valued their genealogies, so much so that it became an object of veneration in a wrong sense. Ancestor worship is known among others beside Israel. Well, there they are. 
Now what's going to happen? Afterward, shall the children of Israel return and seek the Lord their God and David their king and shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. In the latter days they're going to seek. Well the latter days is a prophetic term and there's no hint that somewhere halfway between one position and the other Israel are going to be a blessing in the earth there's no, there's no possibility of lifting out the passage in Isaiah. Arise, shine, for thy light is come at some period long before the sequestration is over, they return and seek the Lord. It's not possible to put it in without doing violence to the scripture. You say, well, why are you saying that? Well, I'm not advertising the teaching, but some of those who will be listening to this recording will know that a child of God who has been a fine student of scripture and whose work is valuable has put forward the idea that for a period of about 500 years in the yet future, in the absence of Christ and before the kingdom is set up, Israel are going to be a blessing in the earth and everybody from one end of the globe to the other will be illuminated. You say, where did you get it from? Well, don't ask me. It takes too long to try to give you an idea. But as we're looking at this converging lines of prophecy, we, we can't honestly say what we can fit in a period of blessing in between the time when Israel are set aside and the time they seek the Lord. It's just the same as the Ezekiel one. I will overturn, overturn till he comes. Here they're going to be like this without a king or without a prince till the latter days and they seek the Lord. So shall we now look at another passage? Daniel, the second chapter. Now this chapter is vital. It stands at the very forefront of prophetic computation of all the things that are yet to come. This starts with the appointment of Nebuchadnezzar as the head of gold, the first Gentile ruler, and it goes down in succession. From Nebuchadnezzar we get the silver, beads and Persians, from the Medes and Persians we get the brass or the bronze, the Alexander Macedonian, and then we get to the legs of iron where you get to Rome, and then a stop. If Israel had repented, if Christ had been accepted, that's the complete thing. But they didn't. And so there goes on behind the scene a long drawn out continued, no break, and the key to Gentile dominion is not Babylon or Rome or any other place on earth except one city. Will you turn to Luke's Gospel, the 20, I think it's the 21st chapter. This is the very similar to Matthew 24, but it adds bits because Luke has his eye on the Gentile all the time. And so it says in verse 24 of Luke 21, And they shall fall by the edge of the sword, and shall be led away captive into all nations, and Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles, here's our word until again, until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. You see, 
Ezekiel, Jeremiah's cup, which is the last of the, of the kings of Israel and Judah. Now I'm going to overturn, overturn, till he comes like it is. And in the place of Israel and Judah is a Gentile Nebuchadnezzar and his successors. And they go on, and the times of the Gentiles are going to be marked by the fact that the Gentile will have some dominion over the city of Jerusalem until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. And you see, Israel are going back to their land, Palestine, but they haven't got possession of Jerusalem. That's their city. And here's a nation that have got their city, a holy city, with barbed wire through the middle of it, and if you're not careful, one or the other side will be potting at you as you walk through the streets. There's no possibility of saying that that's been delivered yet. And that's the mark of Gentile dominion. And before the end comes, Zechariah says, God will make Jerusalem a burdensome stone and a cup of trembling to all the nations about. You can understand why, can't you? Never can be settled till that's settled. So here we have them. We've got the long line of Gentile dominion. Now let's get to the end of the story, chapter uh, Daniel 2 and um, the interpretation. We'll get, get down as far as um, verse 41. You'll have to supply a great deal, but I'm assuming that you do know these prophecies fairly intimately. Verse 41, Whereas thou sawest the feet and toes part of potter's clay, part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, but there shall be in it the strength of the iron, for as much as thou sawest, the iron mixed with miry clay. And as the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken, margin brittle. You see, a mass of metal, gold, silver and brass, couldn't possibly stand on feet of clay. It'd be like those things you see the men selling sometimes at Christmas. They blow up a pig and then he goes like this. You see, that's what it happened. But if it were if it were made into pottery, a good solid stand would take it. But it'd be very vulnerable. If you hit it, if you smash that, well, it would break to pieces. So it's brittle. And whereas thou sawest iron mixed with barley clay, they shall mingle themselves. Now, who are they? Doesn't say. But when he goes on to explain this prophecy a bit further on, he says these ten toes represent ten kings. So we must remember that there's a bit more to be said afterwards. They shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. And in the days of these kings, now is my point, in the days of these future kings, which have not yet come, for the book of the Revelation speaks of them, and they've not come, in the days of these kings, Shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom? Well, he hasn't set it up yet. And those kings haven't come yet. So God has never set up this kingdom yet. Which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. But it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms. And it shall stand forever. For as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands. And that it break in pieces. Now do notice this. All the image is, is envisaged at the end. No break somewhere. Right the way down from gold to clay. Then it break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver and the gold. 
The great God has made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter. The dream is certain and the interpretation sure. So again, Gentile prophecy is waiting until the stone cut out without hands smashes the base and the whole thing goes away like chaff on a summer threshing floor. There's no blessing to this earth while the Gentile has got the grip on Jerusalem. It's utterly impossible to conceive that for a period of 500 years an illuminated people of Israel could be functioning blessing in the earth and Jerusalem trodden down to the Gentiles until this takes place. It does not seem possible that anyone with ordinary sense, let alone reading of the scriptures, should try to force it into this place. Well, that's another scripture. While we've got Daniel open, we'll look at the seventh chapter. And in this seventh chapter, you may remember that we were already looking at it, although that is not recorded in this series, that there were four kingdoms, or four kings, one after the other. They've got their description given, verse 4 was like a lion, verse 5 is like a bear, verse 6 is like a leopard. And in the book of the Revelation, chapter 13, we have an indescribable monster, it's described as being like a leopard with having feet like a bear and a mouth like a lion. Well, Walt Disney couldn't invent something worse than that, could he? That's the character that God has given of the last phase of Gentile dominion in this world. The great dictator, of whom Napoleon and Hitler and Mussolini and all the rest were poor little faint shadows. He's going to combine in himself all that's most horrible in this, this abuse of rule right down the ages. And so we have these kings. And we, we are told in chapter 7, verse 9, I beheld till thrones were cast down or placed, and the Ancient of Days did sit. I won't read all this because of our time. Verse 11, I beheld then because of the voice of the great words which the horn spake. And I beheld even till the beast was slain, and his body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As concerning the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. And I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came in the clouds of heaven, and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory in a kingdom, that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom, that which will not be destroyed. Again, you see, the focus of prophecy is right to the time when the ancient of days did sit, the Son of Man is invested with universal dominion, and it's right in the time of the closing chapters of the book of the Revelation. So, honestly, doing all justice we possibly can to the integrity of the teacher we're speaking about, we don't question his motives, but we can say that unless we can find a place in the scheme of things that God has written over and over again, we should have to say, well, it's a, a lovely dream. But if it's only a dream, we, it may be fraught with great danger. Well, then we pass on then to the last of these converging lines for this evening, and that is Matthew 24. Here we have the Saviour giving an outline of the things which will take place with regard to his second coming. 
And although he warns us in chapter 24, in verse 36, but of that day and hour knoweth no man, know not the angels of heaven, but my Father only, he does give you a date line in verse 29. You can say that you know that the second coming of Christ cannot take place until the great tribulation has been on the earth. For it says, verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be dark and the moon shall not give a light and the stars shall fall from heaven and the powers of the heaven shall be shaken and then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven and then shall all the tribes of the land, not the earth, mourn. So again, you see, it's focusing our attention on the time of the end. And there are other indications in this chapter 24 of a time period. It says, in verse 21, or verse 20, Pray ye that your flight be not in the winter, neither on the Sabbath day, for then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. Well, you see, there cannot be two tribulations that are greater than any other tribulation that's ever been, because that's a contradiction in terms. So here is one tribulation that's yet to come, nothing ever been like it, nothing ever like it again, and not till that takes place will this aspect of the second coming be possible. Immediately after the tribulation, then it has another focus. In verse 15, When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet stand in the holy place, who shall read it, let him understand. So once more, we've got a note. The prophet Daniel, confessedly a difficult book, has told us that God has separated from all time a period of years which are put in cryptic language 70 times 7 or 70 weeks. It's not usual for an English person to speak of a, of a week of anything in the sense of wanting seven oranges. If you went up to the fruiter and said, I want a week of oranges, he said, I know what you want, but uh, I wouldn't like to say it. But you see, a week in the Old Testament is a seven, that's all. Seventy weeks is seventy-seven. And that period is marked off into sections, and it tells you that at the end of the sixty-two, Messiah should be cut off and have nothing. And if you reckon the years from the time of the going forth of the proclamation to rebuild and restore Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the Prince, it covers exactly on the very spot. Then after that, the long-suffering of God waits another 35 years through the Acts of the Apostles, and then Israel become low army. And when God picks up again with them, as he will very soon, there's just three more sevens to run their course. And the last one, the last one, is the seven that matters most. In that seven, is this abomination of desolation set up. That seven will start with this incipient anti-Christian beast arising with flatteries and he will enter into a covenant relationship with Israel and Israel are just longing for someone to take the thing in hand and come to their rescue. They say, what's the good of trusting to the United Nations? They have a lot of meetings but they don't do anything. They're wanting to get a little security. Look at the temptation of that people when at last somebody says, I'll give it to you. They enter into a relationship with him. And then, 
at the middle of that week, and it's defined for us as 42 months, or 1,260 days, or a time, times and a half, three years and a half, when that strikes, he breaks the covenant, reveals himself, and the time of tribulation commences and lasts for three years and a half. At the end, the abomination of desolation there is dealt with by the personal coming of Christ. And that leads us to our study next time with the last chapters of the book of the Revelation. For chapter 19, we get the heaven opened and the revelation of Jesus Christ, the destruction of Babylon, the taking of the beast and the false prophet, and the beginning of the thousand-year reign of Christ, which we speak of as the millennium. So I think that we'll say to ourselves, well, we've had the suggestion that in the studying of the Old Testament prophets, we do feel that they all lead us not to look for any blessing to this earth, any illumination, any idea that the people of Israel or anyone else will ever know peace in the true sense of the word till he comes. And we are glad, aren't we, that it's been reserved like that. Until he comes, whose right it is, and it will be given unto him.